Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the book of Romans, Pastor Murphy showed us that believers must not only know biblical truth, but they must also act on it. Today, we'll see that even though Christ has conquered the power of sin, there is still an ongoing battle in the believer's life because of his body and its desires. All right, turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 6. And let us read uh, from verse number 11 to verse number 14, uh, Romans chapter 6. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let sin therefore not reign in your mortal bodies, that ye should obey in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Our Father, would you be pleased to meet with us this morning? And would your Holy Spirit uh, be with us in our midst? And would he be pleased to bless your word and use it to the benefit of the hearer? In our troubling times, when we're faced with so many uncertainties, it is so uplifting to know that there are things that we are certain about in Scripture. One of those great truths that we are certain about is that we are not helpless pawns in the hands of a tyrannical sin uh, that reigns in our lives. We thank thee for the certainty of victory in Christ and that Christ does make a significant, substantial difference in our lives because of the power of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Help us, therefore, as your people, not to be content to live at a substandard Christian life and not to allow... uh, sin to dominate us in such a way that we do not depict that glorious picture of victory that the Bible paints about the believer. Help us, Lord, to live triumphantly and victoriously and be able to show to the world that Christianity is not just a theory. It is actually truth that works. And we ask you this morning as we once again trek across this great terrain of biblical truth and we face one of these high points, one of these mountain points in the epistle that assures us as your people that victory is ours and victory is our heritage and we should not uh, in any way settle for anything less than victorious Christian living over our sinful nature. 
Lord, there may be someone here this morning that has never really fully grasped and understood the significance of this truth to their lives. I pray this morning that that may be a turning point and that somehow your truth will get hold of their mind and their attention and they will experience the transforming power that is offered by when they put their faith and trust in Christ. Help me this morning uh, to do justice to your word and give me the wisdom to know how to explain in a manner that the simplest person here can understand and comprehend. But at the same time, help me not to so cheapen it that we lose the depth and the meaning and the significance of it. Will you help us now as we go into your word? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul was never satisfied to merely declare or to affirm any biblical truth. The Pauline effort of teaching was twofold. The Apostle Paul asserts a truth, and then the Apostle Paul applies the truth. You will find that in every epistle that you read of the Apostle Paul, you find this consistent Pauline approach to teaching. He tells you what the truth is, but then he says we can't stop there. We must apply the truth. And there's a reason for this. The dynamic that connects truth with the Christian life is the word faith. I repeat, the dynamic that connects truth with the Christian life is faith. It is faith in truth that makes that truth alive in the believer's life. In other words, faith is the power that turns theory into reality and belief into action. And that's why when Paul gives you the truth, he's not content to leave it there. He must say to you, you need faith to take hold of this truth and now let us apply it through your faith. I don't know if you are aware of this and I've said it many, many times but it needs repeating. Unless faith appropriates truth, truth has no power in your life. Unless faith appropriates truth, truth has no power in your life. Did you know that merely hearing the word and even understanding the word can be detrimental to your life? I don't know if you're aware of that or not. The same sun that melts the ice hard as the clay. And the same word of God that breaks people's heart if it is not attended to or obeyed or uh, embraced, it just makes you harder to comprehend that truth. It's a real danger that people face. It seems to me, by the way, that when believers read the scriptures, they don't seem to see the warnings of scripture. They only seem to get hold of the promises that are there and the truth that are enlightening and elevating. But they seem that when they read the Bible, they don't understand that the Bible keeps warning, warning, warning. For example, take the book of Hebrews, one of the most glorious books that speaks of the preeminence of Christ, that Christ is better than any, any, any leader or any movement or any sacrifice. But do you know that throughout that book where Christ is so elevated and presented so preeminently, almost throughout the chapter, 
you have these periodic punctual warnings. If this is true, let me warn you if you don't respond to the truth. You find such warnings in chapter 4, verse 1 to 8, chapter 5, verse 11 to 14, chapter 6, verse 4 to 8, again in chapter 10, verse 26 to 28, and chapter 12, verse 16 and 17, and verse 25 to 28. In other words, six different times, while writing that great epistle, the apostle that writes it stops and he says, I want to warn you, I want to warn you, I want to warn but we never seem to see that. So we never pay attention to those great warnings. And you know what essential warning is in the book of Hebrews? Turn with me to chapter 3 for just a moment. You'll see the relevance of what I'm saying shortly and the connection with all that I'm going to be saying this morning. In Hebrews chapter 3, look at verse number 3, verse number 18 and 19. The writer says, And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that what? Believe not. Now he's talking about God's people. He's talking about Israel. He's talking about the people that God brought out of Egypt and brought to go into the promised land. But yet it declares here that he says they will never get into the promised land. Why? Because of their unbelief. He goes on to say in this same chapter, so we see that they could not enter. Why? Because of unbelief. And then he goes on to say, let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with what? Faith of those that heard it. Here's the irony. Everybody heard the same thing. God made no distinction in that way. Everybody saw the same miracles. But what happened? Those that did not believe never entered. That's a warning. And that's a warning to people within the church. That unless we understand the connection between truth and faith, and this, if faith is not a dynamic in our lives, what do we have? We just have theory. When you read the book of Hebrews chapter 11, there's a difference between those in chapter 3 and chapter 4. And you know what's the difference between Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 and Hebrews chapter 11? One word, faith. One word is faith. As a matter of fact, in chapter 11, the Apostle Paul points out that it was faith that enabled and empowered people to do things that were not only spectacular and miraculous, but virtually impossible. In every case, when it takes one of these heroes of faith and lifts them up before our eyes as models and examples, the key word about their lives is faith. For example, by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice. Faith is what enabled him to understand the blood sacrifice was what was acceptable. Cain gave his best, but it was the works of his hands. 
It took Abel's faith to understand so that he could... Enoch, the Bible said, was translated by faith. Noah, we told, built an ark by faith. We told that Abraham left her of the Chaldees by faith. We told that Sarah received power to conceive by faith. We told that Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses, all of them, the thing that made their life difference was this element of faith. The point I'm underscoring here this morning is the same point that Paul is trying to draw to their attention. When we heard the word of God, unless we as God's people act on that word by faith, that word does not produce results in our lives. It has just become theory and not practice. And by the way, it's staggering that you don't have to understand or even comprehend all that God says in order to act on it. Let me show you that for just a moment. Look at uh, Hebrews 11 verse 7, what it said of Noah. It's staggering what it said of Noah in that passage. I don't know if you observed it or thought about it before, but I find it fascinating what is said about uh, Noah because we think sometimes we need to understand everything. We need to comprehend it. But when you come to this particular passage, note what it says about Noah in verse, um, verse 7, chapter 11. He says, by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things, what? Not seen as yet. Noah had never seen rain. Nobody had ever seen rain. But God said, listen, I'm going to destroy the world with the floods. You need to build a boat. He had nothing to connect with. I mean, what is rain, God? In other words, I'm saying, when you come to a passage like uh, chapter 6 in Romans, you will say, Pastor, I don't understand all that is there. The point is you don't have to comprehend it or understand it. You need to embrace it, even though, because of the faith that connects you with God's word. Do you notice what it said of Abraham in chapter 11, verse 8? By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into the place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed and went out, not knowing where he went. Now, to any man, that's all like total madness. But you know what motivated Noah to do what God told him, leave and go. That is all he needed to know. He didn't need to know, where am I going, God? What is it called? He left not knowing where he would, where he would go. That is faith taking God at his word, even though you don't have the details of how that is going to work out. The element of faith is so crucial. And if you're willing to exercise faith uh, on the basis of what you understand, all of this biblical truth, that's not what you should... God has presented the truth to you. Reveal that truth to you. You act on that truth, whether you can fully comprehend it or not, because it is God that said it. All of these men did some things that... Virtually seem impossible. Look at chapter 11 and same, and look at what it said of Sarah. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive. 99, a 90-year-old woman uh, having a child. Have you ever heard of such folly yet? But God said you're going to have a child. And her faith took God at his word, even though that was biologically impossible and unnatural. 
it required something supernatural to bring that to pass. But because God said it, she said, look, I believe this. This is going to happen. That is what faith does. You don't have to comprehend every biblical truth to understand that truth and to embrace that truth and act on that truth. Could you look at all the said of Joseph in chapter 11, verse 22 for just a minute? By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of departing of the children of Israel and gave commandments concerning his bones. I laughed at that when I read it. That's a profound statement. Here I am going to die, and for the next 400 years, my people are going to be in Egypt. But I know one thing. They're going to come out. So when I die, remove my bones. You think of a staggering statement like that? Not one year, two years, but 430 years, Israel is in Egypt. And Joseph said, I am going to die. Don't leave my bones here when you leave. 430 years. You talk about faith? But does that, any of that make any sense to the natural man? And now here's the relevance of what I'm saying to you this morning. Romans chapter 6 gives you the mechanics of what God has done to break the bondage of sin in your life. It shows you and tells you exactly what God has done to make it possible for sin not to control you and master you and enslave you any longer. It says to you, through the mechanics that you may not comprehend, God has freed you from the domination of sin. You must no longer be a slave of sin. Sin must no longer be a master over you and reign as a monarch over you. Those days are over when you put your faith and trust in Christ. But pastor, I don't understand how it works. Did any of these men understand how it worked? All they wanted to hear is God said it. I'm going to act on it and believe it. And I want to say to you this morning... That no one in the scriptures fully understood the importance of faith in the believer's life than the Apostle Paul. He is the one that wrote more exhaustively and extensively of faith because he, got, he understood that this is what the key is. Have you ever gone through Paul's writing yet and see what Paul connects with faith? For example, in Romans chapter 1 verse 17, Paul says, the just shall live by faith. The righteous man shall live by faith. See? So he, he connects living for God by the exercise of faith. In, in, in Acts chapter 26, when he's talking and preaching before Agrippa, he makes an astounding statement. He said, God called him to open the eyes of the blind, to set the captive free. And then he said, to those who are sanctified by faith. So even our life of holiness is connected with faith. In Romans chapter 1 verse 12, Paul talks about the comfort that faith brings. Everything that seems as though Paul cannot escape the reality that faith is the dynamic, is the catalyst in the believer's life. Without faith, nothing else matters. All is just theory. In Romans chapter 2, he says we have access to God, how? By faith. So when you on your knees praying, do you see God 
looking down with his ears inclined to you. You don't see it. But the apostle Paul said, because of our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God has inclined his ear towards us. He wants to hear us. Even access to prayer and to God is by faith. In Romans chapter 7, verse 20, Paul says, we stand by faith. I repeat, we stand by faith, not by our reasoning, our intellect, our smartness, or what we can comprehend. See. But we stand by faith. That's how we as believers uh, in life is able to take a stand see. and not crumble when the whole world begins to disintegrate. Even in this COVID-19, we don't have to panic. And the reason why we don't panic is because we have faith in a living God. So whether we live or die, what does it matter? That is what Christianity is all about. It's faith involved. In Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 70, he said that we walk by faith. And the word walk means our manner of life. See? And that's how we conduct ourselves. We, we should be a people whose life is completely characterized by faith. And then in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, he says that Christ dwells in our heart. Guess how? By faith. You know. Have you ever looked into that heart of yours and see a little Christ in there? Has any Christian surgeon done heart surgery and found that somehow in your heart Jesus is in there? No, but Paul says it's, he's there by faith. By an act of our faith, we believe that he indwells us by his Holy Spirit. We don't see it. We don't feel it. It is positional truth. See? In Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, he says that we receive the righteousness of God by faith. You see how important that is? Not one single person here is saved who doesn't have faith in Jesus Christ. Because you cannot have the righteousness of Christ, God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, our salvation is linked by your faith in Christ. In other words, every single dimension of your life as a believer is linked with this catalyst, this dynamic called faith. And that's why Paul is teaching and he's explaining. And he, he realizes that all of this is just theory. You now need to take what I'm saying to you and apply it to your life because if you don't, it can't benefit you. This is how important faith is. If you were to ask me, what's the difference between this generation and previous uh, generations of believers? What, what's the main difference? There's only one word that would express to me is this. We don't have the kind of faith that our forefathers had. We don't demonstrate that level of faith that they had. And because of that, we don't experience the level of victory and triumph that these men wrote about. You ever read Spurgeon yet? You ever read Charles Finney? You ever read Life of Dwight L. Moody? You ever read Hudson Taylor? You ever read of these great men and then sit down and say, but wait a minute, I'm a zero. See? And what is significant about their lives is this element of faith. You know, in Hebrews 
It's said about some of these men, and I want to quote what it said in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 33 to 34. It says, because of faith, these men subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of land, quenched the fiery violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were mere strong, waxed valiant in the fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, not aliens above, but, the, <laughs> but strangers, tortured, but accepted no deliverance. Uh, trials of cruel mocking and scourging. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were slain by the sword. They wandered about like sheep in goat's clothing, destitute, afflicted, tormented. And then he goes on to say, they all did it by faith. And that is what I think is really substantially missing in our lives. And we will never ever be giants for God without this quality of faith in our lives. So I'm saying to you, the Apostle Paul, after giving all this doctrinal teaching, he's never merely content to say, okay, I'll teach you the doctrine. I'll give you the theory. No, fall in love with theory. No, the Apostle Paul says, uh-uh. what you've got to do now is apply that truth. And this is exactly what Paul does. In, in this particular passage. So in verses 1 to 10, he tells you what God's part is, what God has done for you. He gives you mechanics of how that has happened. Then in verse 11 to 40, he said, okay, I want to tell you what your part is now. See? You've got a part to play in this whole thing. You just wait and let God. <laughs> that, that's the biggest myth I ever heard. See? Yeah. Uh, if you read some of the... Um, these um, meetings that they would have and conferences about on the higher life. Uh, you read most of them, they're always saying that the way to victory is to let go and let God. So, so you just let God do it. You don't, you, if you just let go and let God, everything. Paul never said that. He said, listen, this is what God has done for you. Now let me tell you what your responsibility is. What your part is. See? And that's what Paul does in this passage. The first thing Paul tells us is that we have to reckon what he has told us to be true. And the word there is logicomize. In other words, Paul is saying, count it to be so, compute, deduce it, uh, conclude it to be so, accept it as so, embrace it as so. That's the first thing Paul says. Now if you don't accept this as truth and conclude that this is biblical truth and you're willing to embrace it, we can't go any further. Because that's where you start reckoning it, counting it, believing it, trusting it. Concluding that if God said so, it is so. Whether I feel or not feel. So there must be this reckoning that, that Paul talks about. I must be so convinced of the truth that I am persuaded to act on it. That is what it means to reckon. May I ask you a question? With all the treatment of this subject, perhaps redundant at times, repetitive at times, but has it gotten home yet that you don't have to be dominated by sin? That sin is no longer your master? He's no longer a monarch and a tyrant in your life? That you can break that habit that dominates your life for so many years? I don't care how old you are. Have you reached that stage? 
Are you reckoning these things to be so and acting on these things to be so? The second thing that Paul says is not only that we must reckon, but the second thing that Paul tells us we started dealing with last time is that we must recognize that there is still going to be an ongoing battle in your life and that that battle centers in your body and your desires. That's what he says uh, in this passage. Look at it again, Romans chapter 6. He says in verse number 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. So he's told you quite frankly, sin can no longer dominate your life. It can no longer be the master of your life. You're freed. But at the same time, he offers a caution. That doesn't mean that you're perfect and that the sin nature has been eradicated. The old man is dead, but the sin nature is still there. The old you that was in Adam is gone. You're now in Christ. But the sin nature will never be removed until you become like him. And your whole body is changed like onto his glorious body. Because resident in your body is this, these desires. And Paul is saying, not only reckon it, but recognize this is the problem. The problem is not in your stars, it's in yourself. The problem is not in your environment, it's in yourself. Within you. That's your problem. You know, there are people who don't believe in the devil. He's outsmarted them, outwitted them. See? And if you can remain an enemy that's incognito that you don't even believe exists. Well, the person can deal with you willy-nilly and there's nothing you can do. See? And if you don't recognize that the problem is your body and the desires of your body, you'll never learn anything. You'll, you'll never go anywhere. Because if you're thinking, you know, well, you know, my mommy is the one that caused me to the way I am. My daddy is the one that caused me to my, my environment, my socialization is what caused me to where I am. I'm the way I am because of what people have done to me. True. Where do you find that? That's in Freud, but not in scripture. See? Your problem is your flesh and the desires of your flesh. And I, I pointed out, that the irony today is that the area of our problem, we adore and we idolize and we pamper the very source of our problem. So we don't help our, the situation whatsoever. We exacerbate the situation because we give so much idolatrous attention to this body and its desires. As a matter of fact, the obsession and the fascination with this body could easily lead anybody to the conclusion that all that matters is the body. That's the conclusion that people can reach in this regard. I have in my mind humorously and facetiously, uh, I almost laugh when I thought about it. But I, I was thinking, as I was thinking of this sermon, in a very humorous and facetious way. Can you imagine the soul inside of you saying, Hey, what about me? What about me? All this pampering of the flesh and the death. What about me? What about it? And what about he? Do you know your body will one day be the food of worms? 
But your soul is going to dwell in some eternal place, whether in eternal misery or eternal joy. Can this be true? But yet, we so ignore the soul that all our lives is about the body. And Paul is saying, that's your problem. Recognize it as your problem. The problem is, is that we, in a very real sense, don't seem to believe the Bible when it speaks to this issue. And by the way, if you go through Paul's writings, you'll find that there's so many numerous statements in Paul's writing where Paul asserts again and again that the problem is the body. Romans 6, 19, Romans 7, 18, Romans 7, 20, Romans 7, 23, Romans 7, 24, Romans 1 Corinthians 9, 27. Each one of those verses I just quoted tells you your body is your problem. Your desires are your problem. See? You know, I wonder sometimes if we were to get hold of this, if we don't understand, maybe the time has come for us to be more severe in dealing with this body. Maybe we should eat less. Maybe we should sleep less. Maybe we should have less sex. Maybe we should think less carnal things. Maybe, maybe we should spend less time on this body and start focusing on the soul. Maybe it's about time we exercise some kind of discipline in our lives. In the interest, not of the body, but of the soul. And let the body pay a price for the health of the soul. Because we've reversed this for far too long. This imbalance needs to stop. But it will never stop until we understand who our real enemy is. It's this body and these appetites that we have. The Apostle Paul not only focuses on the body. But the Apostle Paul leaves us in no doubt that the area of the body that needs greatest concern is the, the desires of the lust. That's what he said in verse number 12b. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies uh, that you should obey in the what? The lust thereof. I call this Pauline psychology that gives us insight into what I call human anthropology. Fancy words. But I'm saying it in case somebody is listening who think they're intellect. Because the problem we have today is that we are mesmerized by the jargon that comes out of centers of learning. And they think because they can use highfalutin words and they mesmerize with the words that somehow we kowtow to what they teach. But we don't have to as believers. See? I am saying to you, when I talk about that, if you were to ask this basic question, what is the real problem with man? And how do we fix it? Because this is what Paul is dealing with. Paul is not dealing with something superficial or artificial, something at the real center of our being. He is identifying the real problem. He's not dealing with peripheral issues. He's dealing with the real problem. And he said the body's a problem, but the center of that problem is your desires. That's your real problem. So let us hypothetically this morning ask some of the leading persons who will give ideas that now shape our social, legal, and political policies of our times. Let's hear, let's ask the question, so what really is the problem with man? 
Well, let's hear the four leading ideologies today. Let, let me tell you what their response is. Let's turn to the scientists. You brilliant men that could put a man on the moon. And now sending a vehicle to Mars. You're the smartest people we have produced. So what is man's problem? Well, man's problem is this. He is in a process, but he, what has happened, his evolution is not complete. That's his problem. So here's my question. So what do we do to fix the problem? Well, we wait on chance and time to solve that problem. <laughs> All us be dead by then. See? But I'm serious. That's the answer they give. Why man is the way he is? He is evolving. He hasn't finally arrived, but give enough time and chance, he's going to get there. That's the fools in our universities. We call them brilliant. We call them intellectuals. Moral fools. That's what they are. I didn't call them that name. I didn't give them that name. I'm just a messenger. I'm saying what God says of them. The fool have said in his heart, there's no God. And that could be a professor in a university. That could be a doctor in a clinic. That could be a person in the pew. It makes no difference. He's still a fool. When God calls you a fool, you're a real fool. See, Because he knows what a real fool is. So I'm saying to you, the scientists, uh, let's ask another question. Mr. Freud, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with man? What's the answer to this dilemma we find ourselves in? And here's Freud's answer. The reason we are the way we are is because we have been wrongly socialized. And we have been legalistically so socialized that we have become too sensitive. And what he means by that is this, right? Now, if you don't know anything about Freud, you know one thing about, uh, I'll tell you about Freud. Freud is what you call a sex-intoxicated man. He's the man that in the 60s made sex free and emphasized that the problem with man is this. He is so tensed inside that that tension inside has created all of these misbehaviors in his life. So he's worried he's got this depression and so on. And the reason why he's got all this tension because he's repressed his sexual desires. So because he's done that, it has affected him so that he can't function properly. So what you need to do now is to re-socialize him. So how do you re-socialize him? What you do, you water down his conscience. You get away from biblical truth and Judeo-Christian principles. And you tell him there's no God. Tell him man was never created. It's just fiction and myth. And let him understand there's no morals. We make morals, not God. That's Freud's answer. But that's what's being taught in our schools and the universities when people go to do psychology. That's what they're being taught, you know. Oh, my dear friend. I would say to you the problem today is not that we got too weak a conscience. Too, too strength. We got too weak a conscience. Because what people are doing, I can't imagine they can do and still got a conscience. So the problem is not a weak conscience. See, That's not the problem. The problem is that conscience is dead and when conscience is dead, people do anything they want to. So we noted to reawaken their conscience. You see how different Christianity is than the ideology and the philosophy of the world and why we are so stupid to surrender to these beliefs that all they do is not to help 
is to embolden evil and corruption under the guise of helping man. Let's ask another question. Because there's another leading voice. It's not only scientific voice. It's not only the Freudian voice in psychology. But let's ask the behaviorists. Watson and those men. What's wrong with man, Watson? You ever heard of reinforcement? All these kind of fancy terms. Negative reinforcement, positive. Where do they come from? Watson. Behaviorists. So what's wrong with man, Watson? Well, the problem with man is his environment. That's his problem. The environment has made man what he is. Now let me show you the folly of that. Man was in a perfect environment in Genesis 2. You could have a more perfect environment than that. But yet, he chose to sin. So the problem cannot be the environment. Go to all the rich countries in the, in the West. Where they got all kinds of programs. Look at the lifestyle of the people. They're hardly marrying. They're shacking up together. They're living wild. They've gone into bestiality and they've gone into uh, uh, lesbianism and, and, and uh, homosexuality. That's where. But they have an environment that is almost pristine. It's not the problem. Watson said that's the problem. So the problem is the home, it's the society. It's the political power structure. It's the ruling class. Clean up the environment and give more social programs and put a new political system in place. And presto, we have human beings that just do right. <laughs> now, a lot of you bought into that, whether you know it or not, by the way. See? A lot of you bought into that. And the, the whole stupid idea is that by meeting all of these social needs, man's problem is solved. What a tragedy that is and why people have embraced that is just profoundly amusing when you come to the scriptures. So the answer, Mr. Watson, is clean up the environment. Do away with capitalism and let's put socialism in place. Because the problem is capitalism, the, the greed motive. Take away the, 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 the money motive and the reward motive. And people will learn to just live, live happily ever after. The folly of that is so amusing that it's not even worth investigating. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us the core problem with the body's desires and how the Bible describes it. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.